we used to talk about Jumpstart Ventures back in the aughts or early early teens uh, 10 years ago. Uh, but that evolved to kind of just being Jumpstart. And so we came back out not only to help entrepreneurs understand that Jumpstart is very much in the tech investing game, but also we have $70 million to invest over the next handful of years. Let's discover the Cleveland entrepreneurial ecosystem. We are telling the stories of its entrepreneurs and those supporting them. Welcome to the Lay of the Land podcast, where we are exploring what people are building in Cleveland. I am your host, Jeffrey Stern, and today I had the pleasure of sitting down both with Ray Leach and Hardik Desai to discuss Jumpstart and its role here in the Cleveland startup ecosystem. Ray is the founding CEO of Jumpstart and has been with the organization since its inception, while Hardik is a senior partner at Jumpstart focused on their investment strategy and has been with the organization since 2012. This conversation comes off the bat of Jumpstart announcing a new division within the organization, branded Jumpstart Ventures, which focuses on Jumpstart's venture capital investment activity. To set the stage, since 2005, Jumpstart has invested $70 million into over 145 technology startups throughout Ohio, with 82% of those startups located in the greater Cleveland area. Jumpstart Ventures now plans to invest $70 million in new capital into startups through 2025. The organization also plans to raise additional capital, expanding current funds, and creating new funds in partnerships with corporations, institutions, and private sector investors here in Cleveland. To date, Jumpstart has four funds, Evergreen, Next, Focus, and the Healthcare Collaboration Fund, providing capital across stages and sectors, which we will cover in more detail in our conversation. The first half of this conversation covers some of the basics, the facts, the history of Jumpstart as an organization and their investment approach, while the second half of the conversation covers questions and themes that I had sourced from Cleveland founders and from the startup ecosystem at large and focuses on Ray and Hardik's take and perspective on those questions and themes. This was a really insightful conversation and I hope you all enjoy my discussion with Ray Leach and Hardik Desai. Ray Hardick, thank you so much for for coming on. Uh, whenever I have more than one guest on at this point, I, I have learned uh, it's appreciated to listeners uh, who cannot see our faces here to do a quick intros so we can all associate names with voices. So, Ray, maybe if you can just kick us off with a brief intro and and Hardick, if if you follow along. Yeah, thanks, Jeff. So I'm Ray Leach. I'm the founding CEO of Jumpstart, and I've been there from the beginning. But I'm originally from Akron and have been the founder of uh, a couple companies. So I certainly view myself also as an entrepreneur of sorts. Hi, Jeff. This is Hardik Desai. I'm a managing partner at Jumpstart Ventures. I've been at Jumpstart for 10 plus years now. Prior to joining Jumpstart, I'd started a medical device diagnostic test company. And that's how I kind of got introduced to the world of venture capital and entrepreneurship. I come from a family of uh, entrepreneurs. Wonderful. So at this point here in the, the lifespan of, of the podcast, have really had the, the privilege of, of sitting down with, with over 70 founders here in Cleveland over the last two years and, and filling this, this real incredible auditory library of their personal and professional backgrounds, their motivations, how they've navigated the idea maze, the, the trials and tribulations of company building. 
successes and failures along the way, their impact and, and visions for the future. And, and so I've been very much looking forward to this conversation in particular because here in Cleveland, Jumpstart is at the hub, really at the center of all these key startup spokes that I think we've explored. And so today, I think we can take a, a more holistic view of, of Cleveland's ecosystem and speak to some of the more structural dynamics and uh, address the the founder sentiment that I've collected over the last few years and, and very specifically also speak to a, a series of topics and questions that I had solicited from Cleveland founders for this conversation. So again, really appreciate you both taking the time here to talk through all of this. That's great. I'm looking forward to it. I think we can dive into it. As always, I think it's important to start with some context before we, we get into the heart of it. Um, so I'd love if, if you could just set the stage here with an overview of, you know, Jumpstart, a little bit of its history, um, and we'll work towards um, the, the present day. I'll, I'll try to do it briefly because we've been around for 18 years, so that's a long time. But the original vision for Jumpstart, I would describe as was as much from the community as it was anything else. So going back now, 20 years ago, there was a whole bunch of energy, perhaps in some ways similar today to today, that the Northeast Ohio economy and entrepreneurial ecosystem needed uh, uh, something new, something new and different. And I got involved in 2003 in that thinking, and it was really coming from the, the philanthropic and corporate community so this, while of course there were entrepreneurs interested and engaged and wanting to see some things new and different, a lot of the founding energy actually came from an organization called Nortech that had just a few years earlier had created BioEnterprise. So now there was this new effort to create an organization that would be focused on industries outside of the biosciences, but also that would have an investing function. And the, the concept at the time was you know, there, there certainly were angel deals happening in, in greater Cleveland, the city of Cleveland back in the early 2000s. But there certainly wasn't a group investing in six, 10, 12, 15 companies a year. And the idea that, you know, there would be a fund in Cleveland that would be very, very focused on investing in uh, first time entrepreneurs and founders was kind of the original vision. And in many ways, Jumpstart was modeled after an organization that had had a lot of success in Pittsburgh called Innovation Works. And at that time, Innovation Works was 20 years old. So 20 years ago, so IW and the Pittsburgh ecosystem has been going at it for 40 years. I think it's fair to say that, you know, about 18 years ago, Cleveland decided to, uh, to or leadership in Cleveland decided to try to create something. So so over the last 17, 18 years, there's been things that have been consistent about Jumpstart, certainly, and that's been with various levels of activity. But we've been an early stage investor in pre-seed, seed, and now over time into Series A companies. So we've invested in 146 companies since 2004 and invested about $72 million total. But one thing, unlike a typical fund, is Jumpstart, um, given that the Third Frontier has been such an important partner of Jumpstart and has been a catalyst to a lot of our investing activity, that those early dollars and dollars up until today are still very much leveraged by the state money. So, you know, it's not like uh, we invested $72 million equally over the last 15, 16 years. In fact, 
this year we'll probably have an all-time high for investing in companies. But it, there's been some fits and starts based on not just how the third frontier is engaged with entities like Jumpstart across the state, but also by the fundamentals of the economy. So, you know, I wouldn't have thought that uh, we'd go through all the ups and downs. Uh, none of us would have thought that uh, back in 2004. But, um, you know, that certainly has impacted things along the way. Um, but probably to kind of for your listeners, you know, we did have this announcement, which might have been a reason for you reaching out to us. And that is the announcement of Jumpstart Ventures. So, you know, over time, Jumpstart's doing a lot more things now than we were originally envisioned to do, you know, back 16, 17 years ago. So, you know, we thought it was really important to reorganize ourselves internally and also kind of have a new coming out party, so to speak. We used to talk about Jumpstart Ventures back in the aughts or early, early teens, uh, 10 years ago. Uh, but that evolved to kind of just being Jumpstart. And so we came back out not only to help entrepreneurs understand that Jumpstart is very much in the tech investing game, but also we have $70 million dollars to invest over the next handful of years. So we're going to invest the same amount of money in the next couple of years that we've invested in the previous 17 years. So that's clearly going to take a different approach in order to deploy that capital more efficiently. And we are very, very hopeful and working on a handful of things kind of in the background that will allow Jumpstart Ventures to invest significantly more capital than $70 million over the coming years nothing to announce today, but that's certainly a huge focus of ours. We're not stopping at 70 million because I do agree with many of your listeners and the founders in town that, you know, the most meaningful thing that could evolve and change in Cleveland to advance entrepreneurs is having a lot more capital to invest at all stages. So that's a little snapshot on, on what, what our, over our history, particularly as it relates to investing. So with this, you know, recent announcement, kind of the the rebranding, the unveiling of, of Jumpstart Ventures. So there isn't any additional capital that has been raised. This is capital that has already been allocated and under the, the purview of Jumpstart, but now under the a uh, specific division to help really kind of from a marketing and branding perspective, help entrepreneurs understand like where to go within Jumpstart and all of its ancillary services. Well, that's in part because if you went to Jumpstart's website a year ago, you know, as a startup tech entrepreneur, it might be really hard to find, quote unquote, the money or harder to find than it should be. So in part, it was a marketing or a repositioning. It's also kind of an operating update. But more importantly, it's preparing both the organization and um, we're hopeful the market and our partners that we'll have a lot more capital under management in the coming months and years. And some of that capital could very well have an, an alternative investment thesis or maybe a particular industry focus. So, you know, these are conversations that we're having with limited partners across corporations, institutions and private investors that really see both Jumpstart and Cleveland and Northeast Ohio and Ohio as being a target rich opportunity to deploy capital. So. So it's a, it, it's in some degree, it's a reset, but it's also kind of preparing for, you know, bigger and better things is our hope and expectation. Just to clarify, because you mentioned it was existing capital and not new capital. And I think it's important to clarify. Hmm. So we have been investing from two seed funds for the last four years, Evergreen Fund and Focus Fund. They continue to be active and we are investing from those funds. 
we did launch two new funds last year a healthcare collaboration fund in partnership with university hospitals and next two fund which is a late seed series a fund that's investing you know larger checks throughout ohio and potentially outside ohio so they are new funds they are not funds that we were investing 2 years ago uh, they did not exist 2 years ago yeah these funds really closed over the fall the well one fund the the larger fund the uh, next two fund hasn't closed yet we did a first close last summer and we've got a handful of investments not all of them have been announced yet but that fund has been very active and that also i think is the next two fund is a good example of jumpstarts or at least the the capital at jumpstart can play a different role in that we're being much you know previously we weren't very active at series a because we didn't we weren't didn't have the ability to write large enough checks to be meaningful at the series a round or a series a in cleveland let's say between 8 and 15 million um or now we have a fund that is very very much focused on investing at that stage and you know working with the company as it raises its b round and beyond so set again 70 and i know the numbers are confusing 70 million in 17 <laughs> years and now 70 million of new money and probably we'll probably commit to all the companies in 3 years maybe all the capital will won't be deployed in 3 years but we'll we'll have made all the commitments to companies likely within 3 years or less cuz the deal flow we've been super encouraged by the deal flow the deal flow is up in ohio and in cleveland yeah so just a quick example of that would be i know dan german was on your podcast from orthobrain sometime back so next two fund invested in orthobrain's 9 million dollar kind of series you know right right so there are a few components here i just want to go a little bit deeper on just to understand you know how it is that jumpstart is making decisions and kind of measuring success and this is a sentiment we'll come back to but i think one of the confusions that i've kind of gathered from the community is is the nature of the third frontier involvement and some of like how, how do you mix government and public and private capital and and kind of the the makeup of the fund if you will so i'd love if you could just speak a little bit to that and then maybe more holistically if if you could kind of just take us through the investing process from you know soup to nuts like what are the literal steps here you mentioned the deal flow that happen you know throughout the funnel as you manage that flow and and how ultimately you discern when to make an investment and the the sizing of of those investments so let me talk about the evergreen and focus funds and then I'll pass it over to hardik to talk about the other two funds but originally just to kind of go all the way to the beginning cuz that'll be helpful to your listeners originally the way the third frontier worked with a pre-seed fund was the state asked one to write a proposal and there's been 70 70 or 80 entities across the state that have won third frontier money for a fund since 2003 so we're certainly not anywhere near the only one there's probably been at least a half well there's probably been a dozen in northeast ohio that have won money from the state since 2003 so if you go way way back um you'd write a proposal and the state would issue a grant to add money to a fund that also had to have matching capital. So no one can go to the third frontier for a fund and just say, "Hey, I want public money and that's all the money that they're investing." They have to raise depending on the uh, RFP or the proposal they're responding to. You have to raise either 1 to 1 match or in some cases up to 3 to 1 match of private money or non-state money. So for the first what 7-8 years of Jumpstart's existence, 
and uh, the monies that we invested out of our Evergreen Fund, which, you know, from 2004 to 2013, we invested $28 million in 76 startups, all in Cleveland, all in, you know, Northeast Ohio, let's say. And those companies, first it required match, you know, our average check size was a a little under 500,000 per company, you know, so it was a, you know, for, it was a relatively meaningful amount of money in those businesses. And when returns are generated or were generated from uh, those funds, all the returns would be kept slash distributed to the entities that provided the match. In Jumpstart's case, we were able to match all the state money with our own money or with monies that Jumpstart raised as a 501c3. So, Unlike other funds in the state that raised money as a grant, a lot of times their match came from private investors. So the distributions of those returns ended up going distributed to private investors. About 10 years ago, the state changed the rules on the funds and those monies from the state are no longer grants, but loans. So when anyone writes a proposal to the Third Frontier and gets money from the Third Frontier for a fund, they are obligating to pay that money back plus interest over the life of the fund. So the risk profile of the state money, you know, uh, was reduced because anyone taking money from the state, whether you generate returns or not, you're obligating to pay that money back to the state. And of course, you also have to still raise the match. So today of the 18 million that we're investing out of the current Evergreen Fund and the Healthcare Collaboration Fund in partnership with UH, there was state money invested in those funds, and 100% of the match to the state money was provided by Jumpstart in UH as opposed to private investors. Now, I'll pass the uh, mic to, uh, to Hardik. He can talk a little bit about the, ne- the next one and next two funds. Yeah, but just one more comment on kind of the Evergreen Fund. So that first cohort that Ray mentioned of 28 million invested in 76 companies, you know, because I know one of the questions was like, what's the ROI on Jumpstart's investing history? That $28 million has returned realized and unrealized combined because we still have active portfolio companies. It has generated $77 million in returns to jumpstart. $62.5 million is realized return. So that's money we have already received from around 20 exits. And exits are in various flavors from Cover My Meds to uh, Wireless Environment or Mr. Bean's uh, Cardio Insight and a handful of others. And we have an active portfolio of 20-ish companies that makes up the unrealized returns, which we should expect will generate significant returns for us. So that's kind of the you know, phase one, as I always talk about in Jumpstart's investing history. So with that, Hardik, you know, in, in the media, it's been talked about the Jumpstart's returns from our early investments are two and a half X. And I think that is very conservative. I think the exits could actually be larger. But before we go on, another thing that I think is incredibly important to the to your listeners is that what does the state want with that money? What the state wants is it wants entities like Jumpstart or funds you know, that are managed by Jumpstart to invest in Ohio early stage companies that can do one of three things. Either first, typically raise a lot of private capital after the state money. That's number one. Number two is generate as many jobs as possible in the state of Ohio, and three is to generate as much revenue in the state of Ohio. Now, I think it's very fair to say 
Jumpstart's orientation is not necessarily around jobs or revenue. At least those aren't our principal priorities because, one, we're investing in really, really young companies. And some of the companies that are going to have the greatest success and follow on funding may or may not generate a lot of jobs, particularly if it's a biopharma company or something like that. But from the state of Ohio's point of view, the way we are graded by the state is have the portfolio companies we've invested in raise significant follow-on capital. And I, I know it's I know the 70 million we've invested so far, the portfolio companies have raised over 1.5 billion of follow-on capital. It's actually a little more than that now, but I know it's at least 1.5 billion. Um, and they're employing lots of people and generating a lot of taxes. And the state keeps track of all this every six months. We survey all the companies. And, you know, so, the, so that's very much something. Now, of course, they also want to get paid back. So right. another <laughs> element, which is not wasn't there maybe in 2003, but is absolutely there now, is they also want to be able to, they, you know, they have an expectation to get paid back. And the only way they're going to get paid back is if the funds generate returns. But the, the one thing, again, before I pass to heartache, that is unusual, most every other fund in the state of Ohio that's been supported by the Third Frontier, most, if not all of their match has come from the private sector. Whereas in Jumpstart's case, we were able to raise the match from philanthropy and from investment returns. So, so that's a different dynamic. So frankly, the better Jumpstart does as an investor, and also staff at Jumpstart doesn't get a carry. You know, it's not like if we invest in a company and it generates a huge return, the people who work at Jumpstart don't get a piece of that return, at least not at this stage. We don't our for profit funds are, are getting to the point where I do anticipate that people who work at Jumpstart will get carry in the future. But up till now, it hasn't like, you know, OK, when Jumpstart gets a big return, that's money in the pocket of of an individual that works at Jumpstart. Right, right. I'll, I'll just actually jump ahead because it's topical, but it's one of the, the questions that surfaced from founders, I think, which is how, because I, I think, like you mentioned, most traditional VC firms, you know, the incentives at play are, are really, I think, driven in, in a lot by carry and, and the idea Correct. that those operators at the fund share in the upside of, of the returns um, and, and how that, you know, missing incentive, if you will, maybe affects Jumpstart's decision-making behavior and, and how you think about that. Yeah, and, and I would say it absolutely doesn't. I mean, yeah, I wouldn't say it. I mean, we're looking to invest in entrepreneurs that can be wildly successful to, for them to get wealthy. And the reason why we are so focused on that is because that follow-on funding number, if there is a true north at Jumpstart from the state's point of view, it's the follow-on funding number. That is the most, because again, we were put in place to create economic development, economic outcomes, and it's other people's money that's typically coming into the companies, at least historically, that allows the company to go out and hire a dozen people at a time, or in the case of Cover My Meds, hundreds of people. But we were there at the beginning. We were the quote unquote jumpstart. We were the early investor, and that created a uh, we were a catalyst of sorts. So our motivation, I mean, if our, if Hardik and my motivation was to get rich, we wouldn't be working at Jumpstart. But at the same time, we are high, you know, we're, we're very much incentivized. We're competing with other funds across the state. And so we're very much incentivized to make sure that what they, you know, that what we're investing in does generate great outcomes, great returns so we can pay back the state. And obviously now we have private investors. So Jumpstart's evolved now where, you know, our number one priority 
in investing across our funds are is also returns where maybe it wasn't that in in 2005 2006 we were investing in things that were very 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 early that you know would take years to get to their first customer so you know the ecosystem has evolved and our role is continuing to evolve maybe i'll just add one more thing so since 2015 every single fund that jumpstart has launched jumpstart is a significant lp in that fund so it is in our best interest to generate returns outside of everything else that they mentioned you know we are putting significant capital from our balance sheet as limited partners in each of the funds so we need those funds to be successful so that it can return capital back to the mothership and they can decide how best we deploy that capital and put more money into startups how are those funds distributed over time back to to lps and what's kind of the general makeup of the the lp universe for for jumpstart yeah, so again, let's just break down the funds because it's important to clarify what funds we are talking about. Evergreen Fund and Focus Fund, you can think of them as Jumpstart Inc. balance sheet funds. So it's Jumpstart as the LP and the GP. We don't have outside capital in those funds. Other than the state. Other than the state, right. But we're obligated to pay that back. Right. So we, we have to pay the state back, but any returns after we pay the state back come back to Jumpstart Inc. That's on the on the seeds fund. The healthcare collaboration fund, it's Jumpstart and UH Ventures. So we are partners in that and we have a distribution based on you know the dollars that each fund has invested. And we have to pay the state back. So the distribution is based on capital committed. We don't have anyone else outside of those two entities. And then next fund, that's what you know. So 2015 was when we launched next fund. It was a $20 million you know, fund with outside capital, both from corporations as well as individual angels who put money into the fund. And that follows a typical traditional you know, 220, 80-20 kind of a rule. So we're structured very similar to any other venture fund. Distributions you know, follow the same process. So you know, ABLE, which you know, Jeff, you know, Gerald, you know, when ABLE had an exit, that was our first exit from next one. We have 15 portfolio companies in next one. Able was our first exit in that fund. And so when we got proceeds from that, we distributed it pro rata to all the LPs uh, who had invested in that fund. So no different at all. And then next two, from which we just started investing, that's a $50 million fund. We have done four investments and we'll soon announce a fifth investment. That fund again follows a very typical traditional venture fund model where we deploy capital over the next three to five years and the returns get distributed pro rata. We still have money from the state, so we have that obligation, but that obligation is to jumpstart Inc., not to the LPs to return capital back to the state. What are some of the, the variables that you measure when you think about success KPIs, like what, what's driving the business, you know, beyond kind of the, the core ROI, what are, what are some of the variables that, that drive decision-making at, at Jumpstart? Our decision-making for, for how we invest in companies? Yeah. Yeah. Like, is it, is it thesis driven generally, or are we thinking about like quantity of, of startups or? Uh, I think it's a 
the primary objective for us with Jumpstart Ventures is to generate returns. We want to invest in great founders and we want uh, those companies to be successful so that it can generate returns for the founders and returns for us. I mean, it may sound very cliche, but like that's how we work every single day. How can we generate returns from our investment? That's kind of the primary motivation. Like in my 10 years, we haven't looked, I can't think of any single investment where we look at a company and say, is this company A, going to create more jobs and so we should invest in them versus company B that is not going to create those jobs. So that's not how we think about investments. That's not how we make decisions. It's all driven by, is it a big market? You know, Do we believe that the founders have vision for taking company forward? Can they raise more money in future because they will need more money in future after we invest? The thesis pre-seed and seed fund, so that's Evergreen Fund and Focus Fund. Those are our pre-seed to seed stage funds. We will typically invest first checks of 100,000 to 500,000, depending on how much money those companies are raising. Sometimes they can be pre-product. Sometimes, you know, they have three customers and, you know, five employees or something of that sort. We invest predominantly in software and healthcare from that fund. The Healthcare Collaboration Fund is only investing in healthcare technologies, working with UH. And the next fund is investing in late seed to Series A, pre-Series A, if you may. Companies that are raising anywhere from four to six. Arthurbrain was $9 million. And our first check can be half a million to a million and a half, or maybe even larger in some cases. So I would, I think for your listeners, I think what's important is... We're, we're walking, talking, acting, thinking like VCs. We're looking for great founders to back and who we believe can get through the valley of death and, you know, and build a great team. And so all the things that uh, Drive Capital cares about, Jumpstart cares about, it's just we have a, you know, we're writing smaller checks, you know, so, so, so I think that, that that's our orientation. Right. There's actually... So I'll transition now. I think we can hit some of the the Cleveland founder sentiment specifically for for the latter half here. But I'll circle back to Drive Capital because there are some things that I definitely want to to get your perspective on. So I will say off the bat, transparently, I, I picked some hard questions here. So you know, appreciate your guys' willingness to to work through these with me. But there, the reality is, you know, there is a certain tension. I think when you ask founders about the, the role of Jumpstart in, in Cleveland. And it's not like a public discourse, but there is like certain feedback that I, I've heard that's, that's pretty consistent. Um, and so again, just in the spirit of that feedback and transparency and with the vibrancy of Cleveland startup scene in mind, I uh, just want to kind of surface some of these and, and talk through them in the, in the open. But to, to kind of start, how do you think about this perception of Jumpstart as a gatekeeper in some ways, given the, the relative dearth of alternative local and early stage capital and how that maybe affects the leverage Jumpstart has when structuring deals with founders? Yeah, so, you know, perception is reality. So I understand how some of those questions might might come, but I'll just share kind of some of the data, right? So over the last, you know, 12 months, we have invested in 24 different companies and 18 or 18 of them were new investments. So first time Jumpstart was writing a check in those companies. Half of the time, or maybe less than half of the time, we were the leads. The remaining half, someone else was presenting a term sheet, right? So if someone else is presenting a term sheet, we are looking at a term sheet and we are saying whether we agree with that and write a check or we don't. 
we'll look at industry benchmarks we'll look at you know what's happening with valuation trends throughout our region throughout the state you know nationally and we present terms that kind of reflect what we think is fair and appropriate i don't think jumpstart i can speak for me for day i don't think anyone at jumpstart wants to be the gatekeeper we would love to have like you know five different funds in cleveland who are all investing in early stage startups because the reality is even when jumpstart is leading around now we are investing $300,000 as part of a million and a half you know pre seed round so we need other funds and other angel investors to write checks in those companies so we would very much welcome and appreciate you know more access to capital that is not run by jumpstart yeah i think one of the biggest frustrations of my time at jumpstart is that there haven't been more funds created and i know this is something that jeff you and your listeners and you know your interviewees have talked a lot about it's extremely frustrating to be perceived as a gatekeeper when you know 146 companies in 17 years when you know jumpstart has to raise i'm constantly raising money just like entrepreneurs i'm raising them from different sources in many cases so i'd say you know we're probably as frustrated that Cleveland isn't as further further along as everyone else. And so I think one of the one of the goals, you know, that's not to say we're not proud of what we've done and to the point of what Hardik just shared, I mean, to do this is not easy. <laughs> to to uh to to raise the capital, invest the capital wisely, put it in companies that have great success is, you know, it's not doesn't happen by accident, but at the same time, the whole angle to jumpstart ventures is Whatever we have to do with whomever is willing to do it, we are open for business. So if there's listeners out there who want to create new funds, partner in new and different ways, Jumpstart's very interested in doing that. And we'll not only, you know, not only intellectually or emotionally, but financially, um, because getting more actors, more investors in the game is job one. Because Cleveland's Cleveland and Northeast Ohio uh, entrepreneurial ecosystem isn't going to strengthen or advance without a lot more capital. Now we're going to invest this year, twelve around twelve million. Um, we expect in future next couple of years it's going to be materially more than twelve to get seventy out in three years. But that's a drop in the bucket. That is nothing compared to what's going on in in other markets. So, and I'm not, obviously we're not the only ones that are investing, but it's a relatively small group. Right. And, and I, I'll pull on that, that thread a little bit. Um, and, and, and this is where I'll, I'll pull back in drive capital as well. And maybe just using Columbus as a, as a, a comparison point here. But I think one of the reasons I, I've collected that we don't have the risk seeking angel investors that typically, you know, fill out that pre-seed void that that Cleveland has is because we haven't necessarily kickstarted the, the the wealth generating flywheel as some of the the more successful Cleveland startups at some point in their respective journeys you know ultimately left Cleveland maybe you know for a variety of reasons but none of which I think you can really fault the 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 organizations themselves for you know founders are going to go where they have the best chance of success but but the, those exoduses haven't, I think, allowed us to mint the the angel investors that are a requisite for the kind of growth that you see in Columbus. And it, it really only takes, I think, one or two real exits to create the kind of founder and early employee wealth to get those affected bot into perpetuating that startup flywheel. And, and 
I'm, I'm mentioning drive because you know one of the the measures they have that they track is you know how many employees are made millionaires from their their portfolio companies, and I think that's that's a pretty powerful KPI that they're measuring. That's, that's a little atypical, but I think gets at starting that that flywheel. Yeah. yeah. And so I guess a, a few questions here, and I know Ray, this is something you've you've thought a lot about and, and talked about before, but your perspective on on the importance of Cleveland retaining its most successful startups and and where you know and why you know that that has kind of transpired in the past um, and and how you've seen that maybe evolve over time and maybe just your your thoughts generally on on this this topic. I and on one hand, I'm surprised we haven't lost a lot more founders. You know, there's a handful of folks that have left town that have had significant success. We haven't had a whole lot that actually, at least the ones that we've invested in. Of course, there's folks living in Cleveland who decide to start or living in Ohio who decide to start something elsewhere. So so that's been interesting because I thought that'd be a more more important driver. You know, as somebody who's been very close to the ecosystems across Ohio and also kind of looked at Pittsburgh, you know, you know, back 17, 18 years ago, the difference between Cleveland, Columbus and Cincinnati 10 years ago or 12 years ago was very, very small. In fact, Cincinnati, I would say, had the strongest entrepreneurial ecosystem 12 years ago. But the impact that Drive has made, you know, the other thing, and, and I've you know, been spending more time with Mark Kwame of late, uh, just through opportunities that we've had to co-invest and partner. And, you know, of the first dozen plus companies that they invested in and in Fund One, most of the, almost all of them were outside Ohio. But it's when those companies raised their B round you know, Drive was an investor at Series A or the seed round, but when that company raised its significant B round, you know, Drive made them an offer they chose not to refuse, and that's to move to Columbus. And it's that action or outcome that's been such an incredible catalyst for Columbus. Now, of course, we want we wish Cover My Meds stayed in Twinsburg, where they were founded. And if Cover My Meds was in downtown Cleveland, my guess is we would all be feeling a little better about the entrepreneurial ecosystem in Cleveland. But to your comment earlier, we had no control over you know what they decided to do or where they decided to do it. It's a it's a blessing that it happened in Ohio, but we'd very much uh, like to have it happen in Cleveland or Northeast Ohio. So so I think the um, what I, I, you know, I, I hate to keep being, I sound like I'm hitting on the same issues, but capital, 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 whatever leaders in Cleveland can do, corporate, institutional, private, philanthropic can do to aggregate greater, greater amounts of capital, I think is the most meaningful thing. I won't, I won't belabor with your listeners, but I've been involved in this project called the Cleveland Innovation Project, which is a collaboration of the Cleveland Foundation and Team NEO and GCP, the Fund for Economic Future and Jumpstart. And it's focused on a bunch of the most, what we think are the most important drivers to equitable economic opportunity. So one example of that is the digital divide. And we started this before COVID. Of course, when COVID came up, we understood how much the digital divide is an impediment to our community. But one area that I am quasi uh, in charge of or being asked to provide leadership is in capital. And we need at mm. least $4 billion of new capital in Cleveland by the end of the decade or raised over the course of the decade if Cleveland's entrepreneurial and innovation ecosystem has any chance to dramatically move forward. So I'm talking to 
all the corporations, all the institutions, all the family, you know, high net worth family offices around this issue, challenge and problem and using places like Columbus as an example, because I do think if we are able to, I mean, it took drive five, six years to really make a really meaningful impact, maybe even a little longer to Columbus. So if we get started now um, and are able to attract one, raise more funds at Jumpstart or with the team at Jumpstart to raise more funds and or attract more capital, that's the easiest way. Um, none of it's easy, but that's the quickest way to try to move the needle. Yeah, it, it was one of the the other questions I was going to raise anyway, which is, as far as 70 million can go, we're going to need a lot more capital. Oh, and yeah. so <laughs> are you optimistic about that? I'm optimistic that the leaders in town are understand the opportunity. I think they have seen, I get asked the question all the time, would Intel have come to Columbus if it wasn't for drive? Well, in all reality, Intel made that decision to come to Columbus not to say drive, you know, wasn't, you know, in the laundry list of reasons, but 3000 acres of contiguous land probably had a big, <laughs> had a big part to do with it, you know, attached to New Albany. So there's lots of land, lots of opportunity to grow. But of course, there's Ohio State, the talent in Columbus, the energy, the corporate engagement, certainly uh, the Columbus partnership in Jobs, Ohio, and all the things that are there. You know, I think, I think, Cleveland has that same opportunity, but we've got to figure out a way to really come together across our economy, across the stakeholders, and and partner in a way that Cleveland has yet to be able to demonstrate. So, so that's a big part of uh, my job, in addition to working with Hardik and other folks on the Jumpstart Ventures team, is to make that happen. And whether that happens housed out of an institution. I mean, we're not saying that's going to happen at Jumpstart. I mean, that's not the point. It probably won't happen out of Jumpstart. We need others to lead in such a way that can accelerate this capital aggregation. Yeah. So, I, I mean, capital is, is one piece of the, the puzzle here. I think another one that I want to call out is, you know, the kind of capital that, that you're talking about. And, and one thing that I think you'll just here, and I'm sure you've heard it many times, is this this general sentiment, not not even specific to Jumpstart, but just kind of with Midwestern capital about it being highly risk averse relative to the capital that that you can access on the coasts. And at this point in the remote world we live in, anywhere in the world, it's it's important to call out, I think, because particularly in the earliest pre-seed seed stages of companies where the investments that need to be made to get those companies off the ground are far more bets on people than they are on traction or even ideas, you know, mentioned the, some of the earlier bets that you've made, you know, it takes a few years to even get to the first revenue, you know, rarely is the business that a company is founded on the business that a company succeeds with. And so it, it is really this bet on people and their ability to execute and survive long enough to find the right idea. than it is a bet on the idea itself or any milestones that these early stage company has achieved. And that is inherently there's a lot of risk uh, baked in, in at that stage. Um, and it's risk that there seems to be a lot more appetite for outside of Cleveland. And this, this is my own just personal take here, but the, the way I've kind of thought about it is it's kind of the difference between those writing checks asking like what can go right, which I, I think is really the predominant question driving decision-making for VCs on, on the coasts and, and what drives 
I think both urgency and, and higher valuations compared to asking, you know, what can go wrong, which is, is I think more representative of this risk averse approach drive, it drives lower valuations. It allows for prolonged decision-making and, and maybe is perceived from the founder's perspective as a little, you know, less friendly when we talk about, you know, founder friendliness. So, you know, risk aversion, you know, what is your assessment of, of kind of the disparity in valuations and tolerance for risk from the, the type of capital that is available? Uh, so, you know, we are certainly trying to do everything we can to try to address that gap. When I mentioned that, you know, we invested in 24 different companies, I would say the vast majority of them were pre-seed and seed stage companies. So for us, we are doing everything we can. We obviously need partners who can invest alongside us because, you know, even if we invest 100000 or 200000 or $300,000, that's not enough for the companies to get to the milestones that they need. And to me, milestones really is, what's the pitch to the next round? Have you done enough to be able to raise more money? That's the only thing we are looking for. We are not looking for how much revenue will you have or how many jobs will you have created? Will you survive long enough to your point to raise the next round? That's how we really think about investments. That's our only criteria that we look at when we are kind of investing in early stage pre-seed companies. So one of the angles that I I wish I could, uh, this isn't going to relieve your frustration, but I think it's a, it speaks a little bit to the dynamic. Yeah. We have an incredibly active state that's invested hundreds of millions of dollars into funds in Ohio that requires match. You know, so obviously the state's not going to put out any money unless there's match there to, 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 you know, to be there. But after doing that for 19 years at various levels of energy and dimension, I mean, I haven't gone to look, but my guess is the state of Ohio has done more of this than any other state in the country in the last 19 years. And so if I'm a private investor in those deals or in those funds, I get a huge benefit because even if if it was a grant, I get all the all the you know, I mean, the, I get I get a huge premium. But even if it's a loan, the way the funds work is once the state's paid back, the upside that the state would have gotten their pro rata goes to the privates. So there's private investors investing in these funds that have a great deal. And in, and in earlier areas, they also got tax credits. So, I mean, the tax credit thing is wound down, but so it, it, it speaks to the culture of our state and our community. And so, you know, one of the things that I'm sure founders are incredibly frustrated by, we're equally frustrated by, and that is how do you change the culture of a community? How do you change the mindset of private capital? You know, I think where we are, given everything that's gone on over the last, you know, whether it's the 08 downturn or obviously the pandemic and all those things, it's like, Generating returns is the only way I can see, and it takes so long. I mean, the average time to exit for a Series A deal last year was almost seven years, and in seed, so it's nine years. So we've kind of gone through two cycles. If Jumpstart's 18 years old, we've gone through two complete seed cycles and have had the craziness of what's gone on. So to that point, I mean, what we're very, again, interested in, if there are people out there who have risk capital and want to partner with folks who've been there, done it, you know, done a lot of it, have generated, I think, solid returns given our our uh, our investing focus and where we've where we've been writing checks, you know, and it can't happen soon enough. So so hopefully <laughs> 2023 
will be a meaningful year where we'll have either convinced some funds to be formed in Cleveland who are based with investors who maybe aren't from Ohio even, who are relocating to Ohio, who are creating new funds, a la Drive Capital, because obviously Mark and Chris weren't living in Ohio before, at least not for a long period of time before that was founded. So that's one approach. Another approach is getting corporations and institutions more in the game, even if it's focused on their strategies. You know, we're not, you know, I mean, that's fine. You know, just... So it's this, uh, how, do, how can we accelerate the flywheel on the capital side? And, and, and another thing I'd emphasize is we're completely open to anyone's ideas. Because if we could have fixed this, we would have fixed it years ago. Um, this is a Rubik's Cube that we are trying to play a role in moving the ball on. Yeah, and I guess, you know, just one thing I would add to that is, at least from my experience, there is, you know, significant family office capital or private capital in town. And it's also getting invested in startup companies. It's not like, you know, they're not writing checks. They're writing significantly larger checks. If we can figure out collectively a mechanism to create more awareness and visibility about startups, about investing in those startups, I think it's a win-win for everyone. Yeah, so even to that point, like what what is a more robust marketing and communication effort that raises the profile of startups, whether Jumpstart's invested in them or not? That's not the point. The point is, how do we raise the profile of these founders to make it easier, better, faster for them? Because that is absolutely our goal. Our goal is their goal. They want to, you know, we want to generate returns. They want to, they want to do well. It's like, so what are the levers that we can continue to work on and to move to make that happen? Yeah, it's always this tricky, like, like chicken or egg problem where, you know, here it, it maybe it's it's harder to change behavior of people who already have capital than it, it might be to, you know, through some successful exits, uh, have the, the newly minted, you know, capital that, that understands that game much more so having played it themselves. My assessment is, is more anecdotal, I think, but you don't have to convince an early stage employee who's had a successful exit why angel investing makes a lot of sense. <laughs> and, and so it's, it's just right. a, Right. A difference of context. where that capital is coming from. Yeah. It's the context, you know, and to, you know, to your, to your point, how many, to, you know, how many millionaires are there in Cleveland who've left a early stage tech company in the last five years? We started counting. There's not more than 20. There may not be more than 10. Capital obviously is a component to it. I do think another significant component to it is the experience that leads to new startup formation. So, you know, think about Toward My Meds, and we speak about this a lot, but there have been 12 different companies that have been started by early employees who used to work at Toward My Meds. So it's, the flywheel is not just on capital, it's also on the idea generation side of it. Oh, no, absolutely. We kind of mentioned before, how Jumpstart in many ways is, is competing with other VC firms for you know participation in these rounds. I imagine, again, over the last few years as remote has really proliferated that that competition probably has only increased from, from your perspective. You know, h- how is it that you guys are thinking about Jumpstart's competitive differentiation as a, a capital provider and you know, what, what is that advantage? Yeah, so we always say, you know, it's capital, services, and connections. That's kind of the foundation of Jumpstart, right? So unlike a traditional venture fund where you, if you had 70 million to deploy, you would have you know, 
three people working for the fund or four people working for the fund. Jumpstart as an entity is a little different because we do have access to resources that we can bring outside of just you know us being a check writer. Whether it's helping our companies with recruiting for key hires that they might need to make, or connections with our corporate community that we might be able to make, or you know, a couple of our portfolio company staff members are at Jumpstart are really acting as their interim CMO because they are literally managing every aspect of marketing for that company. So. We go deep with companies that we invest in. We spend significant time in trying to figure out how best we can be a value-added partner. And because of the structure of how we are funded, we are able to afford that as an organization. So I would say that is different compared to most traditional venture funds. I guess another angle, too, on this is we have the ability to write checks from you know 100000 to $3 million. We didn't always have that ability. Now we have that ability. So if, if a company is raising a million dollars or, le- or let's say they're raising a million dollars now, so we could invest 250 to 500. But if things go well, they know they're going to get, you know, they could get another two, three million because these are in different funds. So the next fund is a $50 million fund. So probably the largest check it would write in any single company is three to three to four million. So this idea that we can, now, if you're starting at Series B, you know, Jumpstart's irrelevant because, you know, you're raising a $70 million round and, you know, we're not relevant in that case. But if you are a pre-seed seed stage or even an early A company, we have the ability to write checks from multiple funds that are relevant, which isn't always the case. At the same time, I don't know, I'd be curious how Hardik would, would answer. We are spending most of our time building investment syndicates. So we're not competing with VCs. We're the ones bringing them here to co-invest in the deals with us. So, and of course, other VCs and other other markets or VCs that have a particular in, uh, industry focus who maybe don't know Cleveland, they view us as a great source of deal flow. So at this stage, given kind of the dynamics of the venture market in Ohio, generally speaking, and they have changed somewhat, but we're not having to... Uh, we're not in a huge fight over, you know, getting our $300,000 into a company or $500,000 into a company in most scenarios. And that will change. Frankly, if it does change, that's a good thing for Cleveland. <laughs> you know, I mean, so so it's a kind of an odd scenario of, you know, quote unquote competition, um, particularly at the earliest stages. Yeah, we would love to be in scenarios where we are, you know, multiple term sheets uh, for the same company, predominantly we are having to bring investors together to help close out a round. So we spend way too much time, effort, and energy in trying to build that syndicate to raise whatever the right amount is that the companies need to raise. But we're doing that, obviously, so the entrepreneur doesn't have to do that. So a huge part of our value add is not just that we can help in these different dimensions, but that we can shorten the time and of course, our ability to write bigger checks enables that that much more quickly. Not that we can write a $10 million check yet. Hopefully, we will be able to write a $10 million check in a year or two. But so, so that, you know, the raising the money, the, fr- the greatest one of it, and talent's another huge frustration now, too, just because you can't acquire talent fast enough. You know, talent is maybe as much of an impediment, if not more of an impediment than capital is. But 
you know, that that's another area where, you know, Jumpstart wants to try to make a bigger difference going forward. Mm. This is, is not one of the, the questions I fielded, but I, this one's off the cuff. So I, I'm just curious. So, you know, again, this is, this is pretty anecdotal, but from, from what I see, you know, there are, there are companies now, and I'm sure the the trend is, you know, a little less than this, but, you know, they're raising a $70 million Series A, right? The, these round sizes are incredibly inflated, but just much larger than they used to be. D- does, the, does that market dynamic really affect, you know, what's happening here locally, you know, given that, you know, it's possible that one of these, you know, series a raises is the entire size of, of the, the 70 million that's trying to be deployed. Absolutely. It has an impact on, you know, just like every other fund, what it has meant for us is we are writing larger checks early in companies. So these are in some cases without a proven business model and, in many, in some cases, maybe even without a first customer, but we are writing, you know, a million and a half, two million dollar check into those companies because we see the big platform potential with what they are doing, and we see that if this, you know, large six million dollar seed round, let's call it, is successful, those companies are going to raise significantly larger capital in the next twelve months because we haven't closed those rounds that you will hear that you'll hear that soon in the next 30 to 60 days yeah and i think the driver to that is the founder or the team i mean jumpstart's not going to write a two million dollar check to a seed stage company that doesn't have you know an incredibly compelling founder or team but if they do we're willing to do it to your larger quite i mean there was no such thing as a Series A round of 15, 20 million in Cleveland three years ago. And that's happening now in Cleveland. So, of course, in California, it's 70, could be $100 million. But it, it, they, these things are all interconnected. They, are, they do impact each other for sure. Um, and I do think we still have a, a valuation in the Midwest, not just Cleveland. We, we have a discount startups in the Midwest investors are able to buy larger portions of those companies for less money. There still is a big delta in that regard. Now, maybe that delta goes away with the impact of COVID and, you know, kind of the democratization of venture. That that delta could diminish. It probably will diminish over the next three to five years, even more than it is now. But a big, you know, a big motivation to drives ability to raise billions and billions of dollars of capital is they're still focused on the Midwest and there's a discount in those firms. And the LPs love that. They love the, you know, because they're already invested in all the California funds. So that's a big differentiator for them. So cognizant of time here, I want to kind of bookend the conversation with a, a few closing questions. This one being a little bit fictitious, but, you know, if you could wave a magic wand to to change you know one thing about the cleveland startup ecosystem that you believe would have the largest impact on its overall success and and longevity you know what what would it be and what is your diagnosis really then of like the biggest challenge that that we face yeah to me it's you know we have spoken about it throughout this conversation it's capital you know it begins with capital we need more capital I think what we can do a way better job of is storytelling. I'm a firm believer in that. We need to tell more of our stories. I don't think, yes, we have lots of issues and lots of challenges, but I don't think we do nearly enough job telling the stories that we do. So, you know, podcasts like yours are great. 
to tell those stories out. And there are plenty more stories to say, to tell. Yeah, I would, I wholeheartedly agree with those. And the one I would add is collaborate. There's nothing that Cleveland can't do. We have the money. We have most of the talent, if not all the talent, but if you have the money, you can attract the talent. You know, sometimes it's as important, if not more important on how you do something is what you're trying to do. And I've seen, for whatever reason, an increasing willingness to collaborate and partner across institutions and corporations and organizations and funds and investors. We need that times 20 because no single organization or at least, you know, 99.9, there is an organization or two that if they decided to do something of scale that could transform Cleveland, someone like the Cleveland Clinic. But outside of an institution of that size, it's going to require collaboration. So, you know, people's readiness, willingness, interest in figuring out what's in the best interest of the entrepreneurial ecosystem for the community. You know, we're very interested in those ideas and very interested in partnering with others to try to make that happen. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you again for, you know, fielding the, these questions. No, oh, happy um, to do it. I, I want to... I want to close out with a, you know, our, our closing question that, that we have everyone address on the show, which is not necessarily for your favorite thing in Cleveland, but for a hidden gem, uh, something that other folks may not know about. So because I'm a big believer in stories and I listen to plenty of podcasts on founder stories and that's kind of top of my mind every day, I'm going to go with that. We need, we have so many stories to tell. So for example, like, you know, Key Factor is headquartered right here in Cleveland and it's a billion dollar company that very few people in Cleveland know about. It's right here, you know, downtown or wherever they are located. So to me, the hidden gems are the Key Factors, the Within Threes, the Island Softwares, the RV Shares, the Drips of the World. We need more stories. Yeah, and for me, I guess I would, in some ways, I would sink to that. And that is not just the stories now, but the stories over the last 160 years in Cleveland, we have, you know, obviously John D. Rockefeller founded Standard Oil here. You would never know where the landmarks are. So like one of the one of the one of the things I hope to work on in the next, you know, 10 years in Cleveland, the corner of East 14th and Carnegie is where Rockefeller's childhood home is was. It's a parking lot. So no one understands, I mean, I drive by it all the time. No one understands there's iconic stories, not just of, you know, the companies that that Hardik mentioned, but incredible entrepreneurs, Garrett Morgan's another incredible entrepreneur, but the list, you know, the list goes on and on and on. How can, can we leverage the, our history and our current history uh, and our, and our long-term history to catalyze culture change? Because we have incredible things to, uh, to for people to understand and talk about, and that really needs to be the heat needs to be turned up on that. And I, and at least for me, I'm a huge history person. It can inform our future and motivate people to behave differently if they're inspired by what built Cleveland in the first place. Well, Ray Hardick, again, thank you so much for for your time and and for going over this. If folks have anything they'd like to follow up with you about, Jumpstart Ventures, Jumpstart. Cleveland entrepreneurship, you know, whatever it is, what, what is the, the best way for them to do so? Uh, for me, they can reach out to me, you know, at my email address anytime. It's hardik.desai at jumpstart.vc. 
Yeah, and they can reach out to me at ray.leach, L-E-A-C-H, at jumpstartinc.org. Awesome. Well, thank you both uh, again very much. Good deal. appreciate it. Thanks, Jeff. Thank you. That's all for this week. Thank you for listening. We'd love to hear your thoughts on today's show. So if you have any feedback, please send over an email to jeffrey at layoftheland.fm or find us on Twitter at podlayoftheland or at sternhefe, J-E-F-E. If you or someone you know would make a good guest for our show, please reach out as well and let us know. And if you enjoy the podcast, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or on your preferred podcast player. Your support goes a long way to help us spread the word and continue to bring the Cleveland founders and builders we love having on the show. We'll be back here next week at the same time to map more of the land. The Lay of the Land podcast was developed in collaboration with The Up Company, LLC. At the time of this recording, unless otherwise indicated, we do not own equity or other financial interests in the company which appear on the show. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of any entity which employs us. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Thank you for listening, and we'll talk to you next week.